it's impossible to find good radio. You just have to realize that we are now in the Spotify or Pandora era or whatever, where you just got to create your own playlist and let the AI decide what you want. <laughs> Resistance is futile. <laughs> Welcome back to GC8, Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. You know, one of the nasty things about divorce that they never talk about is when your series that you're watching gets disrupted, okay? <laughs> and I, I just bring this up because I can't be the only one out there who was wrapped up in the midst of several different series when I went through my divorce and had to start from scratch all over again with no cable or anything. And now I'm going back and like revisiting things that, that were disrupted that I loved. So that being said, I've been watching Boardwalk Empire. I've been making my way through the series and, and I introduced my boyfriend to it. If you don't know what it is, it came out in 2010, starring Steve Buscemi. It's about the mobs surrounding Atlantic City during the Prohibition movement. It's a fantastic, cinematically appealing series, and it's actually available on HBO Max now. So it's been great just kind of revisiting that series. I only made it through part of, I think, season three before things went south in my life and I couldn't watch it anymore. And I'm just now, eight years later, getting around to watching the rest of it. <laughs> so nice. it gets better, guys. It gets better. Divorce sucks, but it gets better. Okay. <laughs> I am reading a book right now called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which is a story about a young woman who makes a deal with the devil so that she doesn't have to get married. Um, starts off in like 18th century France or sometime around that time period. And then it follows her through the hundreds of years in which she is immortal, never going to die, never has to get married. But the catch is people instantly forget her as soon as they've met her. So within half an hour or an hour, they have no idea who she is. And what's interesting about it is I wrote a book just like this a few years ago. And it's always funny when, when you find yourself reading something that's been published where you yourself in your own creative world were trying to explore the same things and doing it not quite as well. As an amateur, sort of recognizing, it, you know, I was working through my own personal shit in my books, which is not what I recommend necessarily for good writing. But it's it's always funny when you see someone else that is thinking the same thoughts that you thought and decides to explore the feelings in the same way that you were trying to explore them, and then they do it right. And you're like, oh, that's what I was going for. Anyway, so it's kind of a funny, weird experience to be feeling like I'm seeing my own brain dissected in front of me, but knowing that it's someone else's brain. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> You're getting way ahead of us to the point where the writer and the stuff that's happening in the book is a little too close to reality. You have skipped halfway to the midpoint of the plot of this film. <laughs> Seriously. I was going to say, this is what the fourth man is probably all about. It's The guy's name is Gerard. It's the same Gerard. <laughs> After weeks of forcing Rosie to read subtitles, I don't know why you guys still <laughs> let me pick out the movies. After weeks of forcing Rosie to read subtitles, I have chosen for our final Benelux film, a film that was not actually made nor shot in... Belgium, Netherlands, or Luxembourg, but was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who directed The Fourth Man. And in many ways, this is considered by Verhoeven to be a remake of The Fourth Man, which we'll talk about that as we get into it. It's 1992's Basic Instinct. But before we get to Basic Instinct itself, we got to rewind 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. 20 years. We'll go with that. <laughs> More like 30, but it's okay. We got to rewind 30 years back to 1992. <sighs> Take it away. So this is my year, y'all. This was my senior year. And this is one of those years that I'm going to kind of rave about because 
that's my year, y'all. Okay. This was the year that Bill Clinton was elected. Hurricane Andrew hit the United States and it was a very awful storm. This was also the year that John Gotti, the Teflon Don, was sentenced to life in prison. The year of the Great Chicago Flood, the year that Cartoon Network was established. That's taken it way back, but Cartoon Network gave us the gift of the Powerpuff Girls, which is one of my favorite cartoons <laughs> from that network to the point where like my oldest baby shower was Powerpuff Girls themed. Oh. Are you a Blossom, a Bubbles, or a Buttercup? Oh gosh. I think I'm I think I'm more of a buttercup. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. I'm a Gemini, so I'm like a buttercup and a blossom with a mix of bubbles, really. This is also the year the Mall of America was built and opened up. Ross Perot ran as the independent candidate for the presidential election that year. He didn't win, but he definitely got his point across. And they changed the rules. That's what really got me. They changed the rules, especially with regards to the debates after that, so that no third party guy would ever get in again. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we've had enough of that. Yeah. Nip that in the bud. Yeah. So if you want to get mad about us being a two party system. You know, that was done by a bipartisan commission. Mm. You know? mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. Don't even get me started. I know. Um, China opened their first McDonald's. That's when Euro Disney opened. This was the year that the FDA urged people to stop using silicone gel breast implants. <laughs> the Winter Olympic Games were held in Albertville, France. This was the year the nicotine patch was introduced to help people stop smoking. And then uh, just some popular films that year, Aladdin, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, Batman Returns, The Bodyguard, a Few Good Men, Sister Act, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Reservoir Dogs, Hello. That was a fantastic movie. God, I watched that probably a million times with my roommates. This was the year that grunge went full steam ahead. So we had bands like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Jane's Addiction. All of these bands really changed the game in music. Sammy Hagar has a has a show on a local classic rock station here, and he was talking about how Smells Like Teen Spirit kind of blew the doors off of the big hair metal genre. He was giving it total kudos. It's because of this song, the game changed. I would say yes, but honestly, I would say it's more Jane's Addiction than Alice in Chains, but that's just me. And that's all I got to say about 92. Wow. The nicotine patch. Let's revisit that. <laughs> yeah, that's an important, interesting detail. <laughs> I know that the writer, Esterhaus, has since regretted how much smoking he put into this film. Well, because he got cancer. <laughs> he, he got cancer and so did Michael Douglas. But yeah. let's talk about the production here. So speaking of Esterhaus, he wrote the original script in 13 days. So quick passion project. And there was immediately a bidding war on the film because Esther Haas's previous neo-noir, Jagged Edge, with Jeff Bridges and Glenn Close, was a huge hit, as was Flashdance, somewhat different film from Basic Instinct. What a feeling. Yes. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> so Verhoeven uh, won the bidding war, and he liked the script, but he suggested a few changes, which Esther Haas disagreed with. One of the main things, Verhoeven wanted to include a very graphic lesbian sex scene in the film, which Esterhaus rejected. He said it was going to be too exploitative, and they couldn't come to an agreement because Verhoeven was adamant about this lesbian sex scene being in the film. Originally, Verhoeven wanted Nick to be a woman. Yes. I think he wanted Kathleen Turner. Yeah. Oh, wow. That would have been a good choice. Well, Kathleen Turner is on a list along with half a dozen other great actresses of the time who all turned the film down. Kim Basinger, Julie Roberts, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Debbie Moore. Lots of people didn't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And as you're going through that list, I'm like, too wholesome, too wholesome, too wholesome, too wholesome, too wholesome. <laughs> and to be clear, all of those actresses, they were being considered for... The Sharon Stone role. The Sharon yes. Stone role. But originally, Kathleen Turner was being considered for... The Nick for the, you know, for the um, Michael Douglas She was considered role. for both. Kathleen Turner was on the list for both roles. Yeah. 
And Michael Douglas signed on to the film, but he really wanted an A-list actress to be up there with him because he did not want to take the fall for this film on his own. It was really controversial. And he said that he didn't want this to be his whole project. Sharon Stone was chosen for the role. Verhoeven had worked with her on Total Recall and said he was really impressed with her death scene where she has this very quick transition from a total look of evil in her eyes to suddenly seeing, like, you know, that it was the love of her life she was looking at. And that very quick emotional range was something he was impressed by. Not so impressed that he paid Sharon Stone what she should have earned. Sharon Stone was paid $500,000 for the film, which was relatively a low sum compared to the budget. With as much nudity as she had in that film, that was all she made. Well, supposedly, the way that scene was shot, she was wearing a white dress and had white panties on underneath. And Verhoeven told her that because of the lighting, somehow, they could see the panties and they were reflecting light. And so he said that she had to remove the panties. Otherwise, there was going to be a lighting issue. That's her side of the story, is that she had no idea that they were planning to show what they showed. Mm-hmm. And that she, as soon as she saw the test screening in front of the, in front of the audience, she went right back into the back of the theater and slapped her over like, what the fuck, man? Um, okay, wow. now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, that was in the dailies, not the test screening. Um, there was a test audience. I mean, it was other people. It wasn't just her and Verhoeven in a room together. Okay, but a couple of things here. I wanted to wait until we got to that scene to talk about this, but now that the can of worms is open, we'll talk about it. You can't talk about basic instinct without jumping into this topic, though. Right. <laughs> Rosie was talking about the nudity in general, because she does a lot more nudity than just that scene. Right. Yeah, she wasn't paid a lot, but also one thing to remember, she was not well-known. She had bit parts and other stuff. She had been in Verhoeven's one of his previous films, Total Recall, in a very small scene. So I can see the difference between that and Michael Douglas, who was a bona fide, you know, Hollywood royalty type. But with regards to that scene, what's really interesting is we've got a he said, she said, because she says that Verhoeven has always maintained that they discussed it. Not only did they discuss it, they discussed it before she was even cast. Interestingly, whichever one of these you believe, it hasn't come between them. They're still friends. They just say that they have different recollections of this. But I remember the editor once spoke about this. He said in uh, the documentary Tales from the Script, Sharon Stone busted into the editing booth and told him, you got to take out that scene. And he said, what scene? And she said, you know what scene? (laughs) And he said, I can't do that. You know, first of all, he didn't have the authority to do that. But he said to her, listen, Sharon, this scene is going to make you a star. And it did. (laughs) She was an overnight star after this. Now, what I will say is, from all of my experience working on films and everything that goes into them and how much time it takes to set up a scene and how you have to position the camera... Personally, I think she was trying to save a little face. I do not believe she could not have known that they were shooting up her skirt. I just don't believe it because in order to get that area properly lit, you got to put a light there, right? You got (laughs) to literally light it. Yeah. I wonder whether it's part of the story where like it's such a shocking moment that that having her say, I also didn't know exactly what they were doing, it, it contributes to what a shocking moment it is. Or like, what a, surpri- what a surprise it is cinematically if you don't know it's coming. And there wasn't a lot of nudity. Okay, so we're going to have to talk about this, but sex scenes in general, I'm, we're going to talk a lot about sex during this. Um, the, uh, the Let's talk about sex, baby. baby. Let's talk about <laughs> you uh, and me. <laughs> All right, someone look up what year that song was from. Um, I know it's after 92, but not that long after 92. And there's a reason why that was creeping back into the popular culture. Michael Douglas said that he wanted to do this because sex scenes were disappearing from films because of... Because of Tipper Gore. (laughs) Not because of Tipper Gore this time, because of fear of AIDS. And 
I'm jumping right to the end of the podcast here. I think this whole film resonated so much because it is in a way, it is a sex is dangerous scare story. And that was very much played into the time. Well, let's jump back to the beginning of the podcast, because actually there was quite a lot of activism around the film. Gay and lesbian activists just poured into San Francisco to try to stop the film from being made. They were shining lasers at the cameras to try to disrupt the filming. Some people got arrested. They were all over the place carrying signs in front of the premiere to ruin the film saying, you know, she did it. <laughs> you don't have to see the movie now. Because there was this fear that this portrayal of these bisexual characters was so negative that, you know, they're all secret murderers and deviants, you know, that it was going to paint an image of women and particularly lesbian and bisexual women as being off the rails and dangerous in a way that they feared was going to provoke more violence against those people. Mm -hmm. I'm not watching this saying, oh yeah, lesbians are so deviant so much as, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> I wanted to provide some historical context for this part of this, because I remember this, I remember the protests and stuff like that. And by 1993, when this came out, I had my psych degree already. And one thing you guys have to realize, and Rosie will remember this a little, Johanna won't remember this at all, not that long before this, while I was studying psychology, so in the 80s and the early 90s, homosexuality was listed in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we use in psychology, as a disorder, a psychological disorder. So it wasn't until around this time that it got removed. And so there was still a lot of discussion about it being a mental disorder, it being a lifestyle choice, it being all these things that we don't even give credence to anymore. That was at that time or in the very recent past before this. So therefore, I can see why there would have been a lot of sensitivity about the portrayal of queer types in film at that time. And it wasn't just this film. I remember there were a couple of other films around the same time. And it was like, oh, you know, gays and lesbians are always being portrayed as the crazy murderer. Right, like The Crying Game. The Crying Game was another one. Yeah. That came out around that time that caused a lot of controversy. Okay, so there was that. There was also a lot of criticism about the film because of AIDS-related issues, that they didn't use protection. You know, they didn't use protection in any of the scenes. And that was a huge thing. So I'm of a generation, we grew up, sex just didn't happen. It's not like the free love baby boom era. And it's not like later on, we grew up in that hole where people weren't having sex. Or if you did, having sex was to die. There was a huge emphasis on safe sex. And mm -hmm. the people in this movie don't have safe sex. And my, my attitude toward that is, you know, that would have just been completely unbelievable. You know, here you have a guy who's not afraid to have sex with someone and possibly get stabbed by an ice pick. <laughs> He's not going to worry about like... Putting a condom on. He's just not going to think of that. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, ice pick you know, condom, you know, it's like, you know, yeah. it's like there's a more immediate threat here than that. You know, as a matter of fact, Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas had to like pad the region in between them so that they wouldn't get AIDS, you know, so they wouldn't transmit AIDS. Never mind that they're not actually having sex on screen, you know, but anyway, all of this goes in to show you what was going on in time. And AIDS itself disproportionately affected the gay community. So I can see why that was yet another thing feeding into concerns about this film. Okay, we again jumped way far ahead, but let's jump all the way back. Was there more on the production notes you wanted to fill us in on? Just a few more notes. The soundtrack, which is really excellent, is done by Jerry Goldsmith of Star Trek and Logan's Run and Chinatown fame. Goldsmith said this was one of the hardest films that he was asked to score. And if you rewatch this, definitely pay attention to the music. It's it's remarkable. In preparation for the car chase scene, which now that we've watched The Fourth Man and this, like I'm going to go through all of Verhoeven's films and see like 
are there a lot of dangerous car stunts that I just hadn't been piecing together? But the scene with him driving up the steps on oh Kearney Street, uh, Douglas apparently actually practiced doing this himself. So that might be him behind the wheel, which is terrifying. Basic Instinct was entered into the 1992 Cannes Film Festival. In its opening weekend, it grossed $15 million, which was not bad for the time. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1992, grossing a total of $353 million-ish worldwide. And for a while, it was the highest grossing film of all time in Spain. So that's kind of an interesting comment on Spain. Um, and those, those are the highlights. I think now we, we can dig back into the film, which we seemed unable to resist before. We got someplace to go first. The lobby? That's right. Let's all go to the lobby. I'm hungry. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's not food this time. Just cigarettes. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to recommend cigarettes on this podcast. Yeah. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> but he has other vices. In particular, he's also a recovering alcoholic, drinks a heck of a lot. And coke addict. <laughs> I was going to say, brought to you by cocaine. <laughs> yeah, no, Is Coca-Cola no. the beverage of this podcast? <laughs> yeah, because cause Pepsi is not the same, right? Exactly, it's not the same. Um, but... <laughs> I'm going to go with the first strong cocktail he has in this, which is a double blackjack when he goes into the bar shortly before he has his confrontation with Lieutenant Nielsen. Michael Douglas's character, Nick Curran, goes into the bar and orders a blackjack. Later on, he also shares straight up Jack Daniels on the rocks with Sharon Stone's character, Catherine. So definitely, I'm going to say for this cocktail, use Jack Daniels. I mean, it's called a blackjack, but a lot of times it's made with scotch or any other kind of whiskey. I'm going to say use Jack Daniels because they specifically mention that in this film. So you take an ounce and a half of Jack Daniels and an ounce of Kahlua and then a half ounce of triple sec and a half ounce of lemon juice. Put all that in a shaker. Shake with ice. Now, here's the key to this. For this, you're going to want to use a block of ice and take an ice pick and get those jagged edges. No cubes. Big jagged shards of ice. And you put those in the cocktail glass just to make it authentic. Pour your new blackjack over that and drink it cold. That's it. Blackjack cocktail. You have to use the ice pick so you have the rough edges on the ice. <laughs> Wait, Kahlua and lemon? Yes, Kahlua and lemon juice. Hmm. I wonder. Interesting. Yeah, I'm having trouble picturing that working. But and triple now... sec. And triple sec. Yeah. Ooh. Coffee and citrus. All right. I'm. I'm intrigued. I'm officially intrigued. <laughs> It is a strong drink. It is definitely, I can see it being a cop drink. Sounds like a cop drink. <laughs> but with a lot of sugar in it. I mean, actually, like, I think I didn't look up what was in a blackjack, but I assumed it was something that was more or less straight. There are a lot of different recipes that go by the name blackjack. So I can't swear that this is the one that they're referring to, but this is the most common, What if you order a blackjack, mm. most commonly what you'll get. Cool. With that said, let's dive in. This takes place in San Francisco, and Nick Curran is called to a crime scene. He's a homicide detective. In his bed, we have a aging rock star friend of the mayor who has been killed during the opening credits in a very um, erotic, dare I say, scene. I don't know. My co-hosts keep telling me that all the other films we watched were pretty steamy. I don't know. I think this one takes the cake. This one was very steamy. Very steamy. Anyway, he's been stabbed by an ice pick with his hands bound by a silk scarf. Uh, his name is Boz, Johnny Boz. Johnny Boz was played by Bill Cable. Bill Cable. Bill Cable, who bears to this day the scars of this scene. And I'm not talking psychological, just like a lot of the stunts were done by the, like Michael Douglas drove the car, did did stunt work himself. The same with the, the sex scenes. 
no body doubles were used for any of the sex scenes, which means he was on the bed as Sharon Stone plunged repeatedly a ice pick into his chest. Well, we don't know for sure if it was Sharon Stone. Well, I'm talking about the actress. Sharon Stone was right. playing. She was playing that part. Regardless of we don't know if it's her character or not. It was Sharon Stone that was playing. That okay. was literally wielding an ice pick, stabbing into the blood packs in his stomach. And she did it a little too vigorously. She stabbed through them, through the plate behind them, into his chest multiple times. So the screams you see on camera are real. And he had to be oh, taken wow. to the emergency room afterward and has ice pick holes scars in his chest to this day. Wow. The things you do for your art. <laughs> yeah. And I think it traumatized Sharon Stone a bunch. She had nightmares about being a killer and the violence in this film. I think her mom once defended her when someone asked her about all the nudity and she's like, didn't worry at all about all the sex. I was more worried about like the violence. <laughs> the only suspect is this woman that left this club that Boz owned with him that night, a crime novelist named Catherine Trammell. Trammell. Catherine Trammell. Yeah. yeah. They go to interview her. She's not at all concerned. She's implicated in a murder. She's totally unfazed by it. First, she changes in her house in full view of Nick. Whether she knows he can see her or not, we're not sure, but the mirror is strategically placed, so we see her completely changed. We know that she puts on a dress with no underwear on. It makes it a point to tell them that, too. They arrest her and take her downtown for questioning in a very large interrogation room, which has five male cops and her. And you would think that she would be very not powerful in this situation she is the lone woman surrounded by five men but she then like gets out a cigarette lights it up they tell her there's no smoking in the building and she said what are you going to do arrest me for smoking and instantly it seems to me like she's the one in charge here yeah she commanded all the power in the room i think even before that the cops seem really off guard by the fact that she is totally emotionally untrammeled, in fact. Am I, am I choosing the right vocab word there? Trammeled? Um, trammeled? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, it, it's not just that she's unconcerned about being implicated in the murder, but that she shows no emotion whatsoever about this person being dead. She's like, yeah, I was fucking him. Like, whatever. You know, I liked what he did to me, but cool. Like, I don't care. Kind of thing. And then I think that the cops are really uh, unsure what to do about this trait in a woman. It seems like they're all pretty hard-boiled, but they they don't seem to know what to do with her. He wasn't my boyfriend. I was fucking him. I liked fucking him. Yeah. That it's not... I mean, the language, I think, is part of what they're not used to dealing with, but the fact that she shows no emotional attachment to this person it goes against probably all of their ideas about what a woman is supposed to be. I mean, it kind of points to this general idea that, you know, a woman is either a virgin or a whore. <laughs> yeah. She seems to be something totally different. She doesn't fit into either of those categories. So then they're like, well, what? She's a witch, basically. Yeah. <laughs> she completely flipped the script on them. Okay, so what is the significance of her flashing the goods? That definitely seems like a power grab. Totally a power grab. I mean, I would say it's even more calculated. A big part of her agenda in that scene is to put suspicion on Nick. When she speaks directly to him and keeps saying his name and is treating all the other guys like they're not even in the room, part of that is... She's working on trying to get the attention of all of those men, but then showing them, even though they would all love to have something special with Sharon Stone, she's just got it for Nick. And it immediately sets all the other men in that room against Michael Douglas's character. Mm -hmm. So she, it's a divide and conquer strategy. That's definitely part of it. I want to talk about the color palette of the film. It's noticeable because this white dress is a stunning departure from a lot of the other fashion choices made in the film. Sharon Stone wears so much beige. 
all the characters in this film wear so much beige and the apartments are all beige. There's a serious gray and beige palette thing going on throughout. And so when you have these moments that the characters are not wearing gray or beige, it just really stands out. I mean, the blood, of course, also stands out as a pretty significant splash of color. But watching the film, I was struck by how plain everything looks. And yet the film has this really intense sensuality about it, despite not being visually sensual in terms of color. Well, she's wearing white in that scene that's, that we're talking about. That's what about. I mean. That yeah. scene really stands out because she's wearing something that really pops relative to the rest of that scene, but also to the rest of the film's color palette in general. Yeah. And like what she chooses to wear to like the police station yeah. is like not what you or I would be like, okay, we got to go downtown. All right. Let me change into a form fitting white dress. So she changes out of beige yes. into white like she's going into battle. Exactly. Practically wearing a cocktail dress to the police department. <laughs> uh, the thing I want to say about this scene, interesting behind the scenes note here, is it led to the very first casting of Jurassic Park. Yes. So we have Wayne Knight, who Spielberg saw in a preview screening of this film. He stayed through the credits to find out who he was immediately cast him in Jurassic Park. He was the first actor cast in Jurassic Park because what? of this. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know he was the first cast. That's that's something. Is he the guy who played Newman on Yeah, on it's yeah. Newman. Newman. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Newman. Newman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, Newman was the first one cast in Jurassic Park because of his role as the DA in this particular film. He did a really good job at making me feel gross in this movie. Yeah. I felt sweaty watching him sweat. <laughs> yeah. That was just freak factor 11. One thing I got to say about this film. Okay. It was panned by critics. So not only did the LGBTQ community or some part of it come down hard on it. Critics hated this film. I want to go on record as saying, I love this film. I think it's highly rewatchable and I have always loved it. And one of the reasons I love it is the reason critics hated it. Subtlety is not a thing for this movie. The dialogue, the actions, everything about it is so over the top that if one of those lines appeared in uh, otherwise straight police procedural, you'd be like, oh my God, that was a corny line. But because it's <laughs> constant throughout the whole film, no one line comes off as that corny or that weird or whatever, because they're all that way. Every single line, every mm-hmm. single situation, everything is like, oh, come on, come on. You know, the next thing that happens, he orders our famous blackjack at the bar. You know, So already he's off the wagon. And then... There's a lieutenant from Internal Affairs, Nielsen, Marty, they call him. And he and Marty get into a very open argument in this bar. Another sidebar. Marty is played by Daniel Von Bargen. And he was another Seinfeld regular. He played uh, Kruger on Seinfeld. Oh, okay. He is an actor from Cincinnati, Ohio that I worked with. Oh. He was a great guy. I say was because he passed away a few years ago. Spielberg cast him in a lot of stuff. He was the chief in Super Troopers. He was the commandant in Malcolm in the Middle. He's been in a million things. He was in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's got just this long, impressive resume of stuff he's been in. He was in Robocop. He was in, you name it, he usually played like a cop or something like that. I miss him a lot. He was a really cool guy. But he is amazing. I mean, he had a recurring character on The West Wing. He had a recurring character on The X-Files. Once you know who he is, you'll see him everywhere. Oh, yeah. Back to the story. Nick has this altercation with Von Bargen's character, Nielsen. And then Jean Triplehorn, like her character, Beth, drags him away from him and says, look, don't take the bait. He's deliberately trying to egg you on. And remember, she is a police psychologist, which, by the way, profiling was like a totally new thing in popular culture at the time. So it was neat to see it here. The film did not have DNA in it, which it probably should have had, but that was still relatively unknown or unknown in popular culture, although it was being used by police regularly. 
Anyway, she drags him off to the side and then they end up back at her place and they have an interesting tryst. This scene is another one where there's a lot of controversy because it is pretty rapey. Um, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to give it a, a 9.5 out of 10 because <laughs> um, it it's kind of unclear afterwards. Like maybe this is just how their relationship goes, but it seemed I mean, especially given your notes about the AIDS crisis and the lack of protection, like really not cool, really mm-hmm. not okay at all. And kind of starts to paint his character as having having some interesting parallels to Catherine Trammell. Um, he mentions that he also has been able to beat a lie detector test and that this is something that concerns him about Catherine Trammell. He knows people who have beaten the lie detector. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, he knows people. People yeah. being him. People being him. Um, you see this, like, violence and sexuality, you know, and using using sex as a weapon to show power against other people. Like, that he has some of those same impulses that Catherine Trammell has or might have (laughs) there's this conversation they have afterward and she says to him this is very key to the to understanding that scene i think is she says oh she does say you've never been like that before like what's going on you've never been like, like that before she said you weren't making love to me and he says who was i making love to then and she says you weren't making love that's the key I feel like Catherine has pulled his strings so hard to the point where he needs to get out all his sexual frustration, wanting to have sex with Catherine and using Beth for that. That's my take on the scene. I agree. I think that's a lot of what he did. It seemed very, very rapey for about the first half of the act or the first three quarters of the act. But toward the end, it seemed like this is part of the way that their relationship works. I don't know. It was very weird. Yeah, that's... I was trying to figure out just kind of her feelings about him in general. And Mm -hmm. that sometimes it seems like she's trying to put distance between them. And other times it seems like she's trying to get back together with him. Not to say that that has anything to do with whether there was consent given in this scene or not. Like, the emotional interplay is kind of a separate thing. But... Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely meant to make us think that Michael Douglas is not necessarily the good guy in this story. He might be mm-hmm. the the detective, but that doesn't mean that he's like a straight up good protagonist. I think it serves another purpose. I think that it also included here to make Beth seem more like a victim because... Mm-hmm. Because it toys with your emotions later on. Well, also, it helps make her seem less calculating. Right. We don't find out until much later in the film, spoilers, that she is way more devious than anyone thought. And I think it's it's necessary to paint her as an innocent at this point in the picture. So I think that's part of what's going on there, too. Okay, so after storming into Nielsen's office publicly, he is put on leave, but he continues to follow up on the case privately. And so then the next scene, he tails Catherine to a sweet old lady Hazel Dobkin's house. This is one of the scenes where it most stretches credibility for me or like where I'm like, I can't help but chuckle. She's driving a Lotus Esprit along the Pacific coast windy highway and he's trying to catch up with her in his freaking dodge sedan i'm like in what world is a, can, are you gonna keep up with an esprit in a dodge you know by the way that's that's the first of two chase scenes where he follows her in and well she he follows the esprit like in a later yeah. chase scene he chases um Roxy in it. Roxy being um, Catherine's girlfriend. Yeah. I can believe that because it's in the city streets and he's in a Mustang, which is a little more believable, but still, I'm like, oh, right. (laughs) We find later that Nielsen is actually murdered and there's a hole in his head, which looks to be a 38 caliber. And so they take away his weapon. They Right after they say it was by a 
probably by a 38 caliber revolver, probably. They take away his weapon and he hands over his weapon and it's clearly a nine millimeter automatic police Glock. For those who aren't familiar with calibers and millimeters and all that, I'll just say that a 38 caliber and a nine millimeter will produce roughly the same size hole. So it is still believable that he could have shot him. So he's again investigated by IA. And here's where we get another great character actor. We mentioned Wayne Knight. We mentioned Daniel Von Bargen. Mitch Pileggi, who's Skinner from the X-Files, is oh yeah, <laughs> the IA guy that's now in charge of his case. Then he lands in the hot seat in the interrogation room. And I love all the swish pans that happen between the different people questioning him. That's like one of my favorite little scenes in this movie where he's being questioned and the camera just swish pans from face to face, you know, <laughs> asking him questions. Yeah, well, he basically claims that Catherine has set him up, that obviously she would have known all this. And Beth, Gene Triplehorn's character, basically bails him out and says, yeah, yeah, you know, he's right this is a very devious mind and stuff like that. And uh, basically once again, saves him. We continually see Beth as swooping in to save him. She's the good girl. She's clearly the good girl. And Catherine is clearly the bad girl in a lot of this. I love it. You know, you got the, the brunette good girl and the blonde bad girl. And like, it's so cheesy, but it's so good. Oh, know? I know. All and right. that cheesy line where he lights up a cigarette during his interrogation and is like, what are you going to do? Rest me for smoking. It's like, okay. Yeah. All right. That's enough of that. Any one of these bits would be overly cheesy in a, in a lesser film, but somehow they all work. The next scene, this is where it just like breaks apart for me for a minute. They go clubbing. <laughs> yeah. And this club, if anyone went clubbing in the 90s, I was probably in a club the night this movie came out that played that song. You know, the song is Rave the Rhythm by Channel X. Also, later we hear Blue by Latour. But those songs, that, that club, I have been there. I've been in a club just like that, except they get the extras wrong. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. At that time, if it was a mainstream club like they're portraying it, it would be playing hip hop or something, you know, like mainstream yeah. 90s hip hop. The underground music they're playing, they had some of the bi characters and stuff like that in the bathroom. And that was right. Those were right. And the extras that they put up on the little raised platforms dancing, those were right. They got the co the costumes and everything right. Everybody else wearing like bright casual clothes and especially him dressed in blue jeans. Oh my gosh. I was like, okay, showing up to the club in a deep cut V-neck sweater. The yuppiest <laughs> motherfucker. Just, <laughs> yeah, all wrong. <laughs> but, but there were enough other extras that were also wrong that he didn't feel that out of place there and he would have been totally out of place and, and there would have been a lot more black let me tell you there have been a lot more black and a lot more leather and a lot less beige did i mention a the lot beige? Less beige a lot less yeah. beige and earth tones well, there was a lot of colorful shirts though like yellow shirts and stuff like that in the club and i'm just like no no there, i mean maybe there would be one guy you know but like that just did not match with my 90s clubbing remembrances. And I remember at the time thinking that when I saw this film. You know, I, I noticed back in the 90s when they would show club scenes, they were usually all wrong. It was like, we're going to do a club scene, but never step foot into an actual club. So they just kind of guess with wardrobe. And it's like... Usually they got it, they got even the music wrong, right? Yes. This one got the music right. The only one that I saw that I remember from the 90s that really got it right was Blade. Blade had the club scene right. But anyway. So okay. did The Matrix. The Matrix did a good job and with the, the Matrix club scene did it. too. Because that one really reminded me of the warehouse, the club we went to back in the day. Right. But okay. Long sidebar on the club which is like a minute <laughs> of the film you know? and we cannot but... skip over the 90s club dance-off that happened it's true the cheesy yes. 90s club dance-off that happened when sharon yes. stone was dancing with michael douglas and roxy was dancing with their other friend all kind of jealous and doing the doing yes. the 90s head bob side to side dance move dance off type yeah of thing. so now we're setting up motive for roxy yes all right 
Um, Cue okay. car chase. <laughs> yeah, well, I, no, no, no. Actually, that happens a little later because now we get we follow them back to bed, and this is their big scene where he. Why the hell? I you guys are gonna have to help me out with this. All right, I don't I don't get this whole business of being tied up. Like he's he like lets her tie him with a scarf like remember he thinks she murdered somebody with an ice pick you know who she tied up in bed with a silk scarf why the hell does he let her do that like what the hell i think that he is so entranced by her at this point it doesn't even matter he's so wrapped up in her he doesn't care i was gonna say we could go all freud on this and say sex drive death drive just kind of like intertwine there for a little bit <laughs> i mean after that 90s sexy dance off you know i'm sure he was completely blinded by all the sexiness and he couldn't help it there's a line later where he where she says something and he says like well it's the danger that made it like the fuck of the century right right yeah that's what he told roxy before roxy tries to run him down that's why she tries to run him down but i think what we're supposed to buy here is that He's so caught up, like you said, entranced by her, not only the sexuality, but he's entranced by the danger of it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that almost seems like a bridge too far. If he truly believes that this is what she does, that seems like a line that I don't see him crossing, you know? I don't know. So the car chase happens. We lose Roxy, who in many ways is Catherine's double. And there's a lot in this film that reminded me of Vertigo in the same way the main actress in Fourth Man reminded me a lot of Kate Novak from Vertigo and the sense of there being doubles that all the women blend together in different ways and Roxy looks so much like Sharon Stone in in this film that there is sort of a sense of they have this entanglement because Sharon Stone likes being with herself more than anybody else, perhaps. But we lose Roxy in the car chase. Well, Roxy likes watching her have sex, remember? Does she like it, though? We're not sure. I think she does it because Catherine tells her to do it. Because Catherine yeah. gets off on it. So Catherine wants her to watch her. Right. And she yeah. said that. She, goes, she said, Catherine likes me to watch. Okay. Let's finally get back to the question of how is this a remake of The Fourth Man? It has been said by critics and by Verhoeven himself that this is kind of like a remake of The Fourth Man. There's definitely a sense of there being a diabolical female character who lures people into her spider web and they all die <laughs> under various circumstances that may or may not be her actual hands on on the murder weapon kind of responsibility but in in either case she has a tendency to lose the people that she's entangled with i think that parallel is pretty clear and then some mm -hmm. of the the trippiness of it like you know it doesn't have peepholes in a door that turn into an eyeball falling out with blood everywhere but some of the time you don't know who you're looking at you're doing a double take a lot of the time I, or at least i found that sometimes i would be watching roxy and be like wait is that Catherine? No, that's Roxy. And that I think the film wants you to not be sure what you're seeing all the time. We've already given a bunch of spoilers, but this is the big spoiler warning now. So if you've never seen this film, watch it before you listen to the last bit of this podcast. I think maybe we should talk about the death of Gus. Mm. Gus is the one that's taken up the investigation and he gets a message to go... This is where things get a little confusing. So there's an office that is supposedly shared by the psychologist, Beth, and the former professor that taught both Beth and now we learn Catherine. And so he's going to this office, I guess, to talk to the professor that had both of them as students. And uh, he's stabbed to death getting off the elevator. And when Nick shows up, we find out that Beth is already there and he's convinced that it's Beth at this point. And Beth reaches in to her pocket for what we later find out are her keys. But he shoots her thinking he's, she's reaching for a gun. But then they do find an ice pick, the ice pick, the murder weapon and a blonde wig. 
in her stuff. Turns out the mastermind behind all of this maybe was Beth. And also, let's keep in mind, too, that before this scene happened, Detective Nick, he was over at her place and she was trying to break up with them. She's like, look, the book is over. Your character is dead. We're done. And her book is printing up on on that old school printer paper. Dot matrix printer. Yeah. 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 And you can see it predicts how Gus is going to die. And then it cuts to the next scene where it happens. My partner and I, when we watched this film, had disagreements about the actual plot. Like, what what actually happens. I am under the impression that it's possible all three of the women have murdered someone and are in on it, and that it just happens to be that Sharon Stone is the one who survives. His interpretation was that Sharon Stone killed them all, and these other two women just ended up in her evil web. Thoughts? So for my take on this film, much like Gutland, we probably have different interpretations. And certainly I know from what Johanna's already said, there are different interpretations. That's the hardest thing for me to justify in my interpretation. My interpretation is kind of the the more surface level one that the movie gives you, which is that that uh, Gene Triplehorn's character, Beth, is behind all this, that she's the crazy psycho one. She, she was obsessed with Catherine ever since college, not the other way around. And she has engineered all of this. That death scene of Gus is just super coincidental in my in my version of things. I think they're all in on it. Like I, I and it was funny rewatching it. Uh, the last time I'd seen it was probably, you know, five or six years ago. And as I was getting towards the end of the film, like my mind was thinking, oh, and this is the part where we find out that all three of them are in on it together. Like, or, and that it's just Roxy, you know, happened to die in the car chase. Beth happens to get shot, but that actually like the three of them are all murderers and they're all planning it in their own little weird murderous ways and that they're all lovers together and it's all connected. And, and then I was actually kind of surprised that it didn't come out that clearly from, from the way I remembered it. And that there is this question about whether Catherine maybe planted the wig and the weapon in the stairwell where they find it and that Beth is completely innocent, which was my partner's interpretation. I thought that it's possible that Beth killed him and has been doing the murders and that Catherine's way of getting off on it is writing about the thing. And kind of in on it or participating in this almost ritualistic way of seducing and murdering people, but that sometimes Catherine kills them, sometimes Beth kills them, that but they're working together somehow. That seems like the least likely interpretation of what's actually going on, but that is the impression that I got. I'm not buying it. I think that it was all just Beth, but Rosie... They really make it look like Beth, but they leave it open to interpretation because it could very easily have been Catherine that did it. She could have planted that stuff there. She could have framed a Beth somehow. She could have been the one to make the phone call. She could have told Beth to be there. There are just so many unanswered questions, but they make it look like Beth did it, but I'm still not fully convinced. Catherine pushes him away because everyone near her dies and she doesn't want to lose Nick too. So she claims she pushed him away for that reason, but they end up back together again in bed and it looks like they're going to live happily ever after minus the Rugrats. Right. But then the camera tilts down and we see on the floor next to the bed an ice pick. Which is different from the other ones, by the way. Yes, the other ones that were shown in the film. Okay, different ice pick, but still an ice pick nonetheless. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're talking about their future. I think that that's definitely supposed to be an ominous signal. It definitely leaves it ambiguous. So this is where I want to go back to the earlier scene where she's tying him up and doesn't kill him the first time. And then the second time that ice pick was in the bed and then she puts it under the bed. Like there's a point where she has it in her hand and then decides not to use it. And I wonder whether her modus operandi is that 
she's always got the ice pick handy. And if the sex is going well, and it's going really well, then she doesn't murder the guy. But as soon as she starts to kind of get a little bored or feel like the sex is losing its pizzazz, then she has to add a little bit of murder to, like, really get off. (laughs) And that she's always got it ready, like, in case that's the moment where she's like, oh, yeah, no, now I have to kill him. I think it's maybe just part of her way of churning through these people. (laughs) Yeah, because she she made it pretty clear to him in the movie that she uses people for books and basically she uses people up and chews them up and spits them out. And when she was trying to break up with him, she was trying to tell him that, but then she ends up with them. So I don't know. It's kind of confusing. It's a big, uh, confusing mess, but it's, uh, it's still a really cool story. And I find that I am more charitable toward this movie than a lot of people are. I think that all the things that people disparage about the film or the things that are most often disparaged about it, it being too cheesy, it being over the top, stuff like that, is the reason I like it. After a decade of 80s cops movies, like to have one where they're just like, we're just going to throw this all out there. He's going to be an alcoholic cop that's also trying to give up smoking, that's also got like, you know, it's got this weird sex thing. Yeah, and like, um, and then we're going to have the Betty and Veronica syndrome here, and we're going to have like all of these things. We're just going to throw all of it, the Vertigo Beach House, you know, and the Mm -hmm. Lotuses and the, you know, that's what I like about this film is it just like, we're just going to throw everything in. I, I, I'm just going to come back to, I like the beigeness of it. Like it was, <laughs> that it, to me, that's what really makes this movie stand apart, that it's got all of that. Like it's trying to overwhelm you, but then like he still has a little bit of restraint. You know, it's not that he's overwhelming you with all this stuff and then also visually overwhelming you. He pulls back in some ways and then like full onslaught in others. And this message of like, sin and vice and decadence ultimately overpowering all attempts on Nick's part to have restraint, to give up drinking, give up those vices that eventually his will crumbles (laughs) in the face of every one of them. I think the beigeness is what makes this work. I think it's also a film of its time. Again, I'll mention AIDS and the fear of sex. And I think that that's the fear of sex is like the driving Thing here like most likely if he's gonna die it's gonna be like in bed but let's think of this in terms of our entire benelux series now that we're coming to the end of the benelux series are we seeing the ultimate expression of the benelux neo-noir genre brought to hollywood i'm gonna say yes because just thinking back to the loft and even to gutland that like really graphic sexuality seems to be a major feature i mean of course the fourth man this is all over the place but you know this is maybe a remake of verhoeven's own film but in terms of fitting into the other elements of that genre i think placing the crime as centrally a sex related crime is is maybe what makes it draw into that genre more than regular neo-noir it definitely feels like it belongs with those other lowland films as a filmmaker when i was coming up learning everything about making films when it came to foreign distribution we were always told that the uk the us and japan you can get away with more violence and that in the rest of the world and particularly the continent europe they're not so keen on that on the violence but the opposite is true when it comes to sex. Sex and nudity is far more likely to get censored in the UK, the US, and Japan, while the rest of Europe is just like, eh, it's just nudity, it's just sex, you know? Yeah, like full frontal makes no big, it's no big deal over there. Over here, we're like, oh my God. Yeah. I haven't traveled extensively in Europe, so I don't know, but I get the sense that there's this cultural difference when it comes to that stuff. And Verhoeven came to Hollywood at a time when, as we said, with Michael Douglas's concerns about sex scenes disappearing from films, that, yeah, I mean, if you look at the late 60s, early 70s, there was a lot of that. And then the pendulum swung way back the other way by the end of the 80s. It seems weird, but you got to remember, we're talking about a film that came out at a time when there was no internet, World Wide Web, you know, nudity. It's like a daily thing now, you know? (laughs) So, but not, not back then. 
I think that this is an example of the way Hollywood sucks up foreign influence in various films and puts it out in a very Hollywood package, you know? Mm-hmm. Now I want to have an ice pick by my bed. Just I know, right? Just for, for thrills. Just for thrills. <laughs> <laughs> This, this was a, a very interesting film. There are things that I could go into that I'm definitely not going to go into just because I used to work in the beauty industry. Leave it at that. It was a good film. I didn't really like the final scene. I thought it was too happily ever after for the whole theme of the film. Even with the ice pick under the bed, it was still a little too... I liked the film when it came out. I still like it now. I would watch it again. Want to remind everyone to like and subscribe, spread the word about the podcast. As always, you can email us at gc8, letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. I refrained from saying on the podcast, but if this was shot today, girlfriend would have had a landing strip down there. Yes. <laughs> she would not be that hairy. <laughs>